think now what I know is that, you know, there usually comes a time in, in my businesses where people say, oh, you've got to stop doing the customer interface and you've got to stop doing the copywriting and you've got to stop doing the naming of the products. And actually, that's what I do. That's what I do better than other people. So I shouldn't stop doing it unless it becomes overwhelming and then I should get help, but I shouldn't stop doing the part that I love doing. That was, I suppose, the mistake that I've made in the past. Hello and welcome to Secret Leaders. Today's guest is Marcia Kilgore, the serial entrepreneur responsible for Bliss Bar, Soap and Glory, Fit Flop, Soap Duper, and now the founder of Beauty Pie, which is turning luxury beauty on its proverbial head with a community membership model in the direct-to-consumer space. Now, I've been a long-standing fan of Marcia's brilliance for many years. She's one of those people you can't help but look up to with a track record like that. So it's a pleasure to have her on today's show. You are in for a treat. I already obviously have some idea of how lucky you are to listen. Today, we're going to learn all about her entrepreneurial journey, the mistakes along the way, how she's handling the changes and challenges of business in a pandemic, and of course, what led her to Beauty Pie and what's so exciting for her about it. But before all of that, are you ready for some quick fire questions, please, Marcia? I am ready. Awesome. Always ready, I imagine. Okay. Cats or dogs? Cats. Uh, Right. Massages or facials? Massages. I can do my own facials. Soap or glory? Soap. There is no glory without soap. (laughs) Fair. Business school or school of life? Hmm. Can I have both? I never went to business school, so I've already had the school of life. I guess I'd take business school. Fair enough. Remote working or office-based culture now that you've gotten to know a bit of both? I think remote working. And you're stuck on a deserted island for the next five years. What three things are you going to bring? Um, I will bring my husband and my two sons. Very good. I mean, that's a better answer than a lot of people. Just so you know, our our last guest uh, was the founder of Bulb. And uh, one of his three things was a bath. Who's going to know? I know. Could have could have been really uh, good for you, right? Could have, like, the second thing could have been, like, a lifetime supply of soap and glory, but... Sunscreen could be useful, but I suppose after a while, you know, lifetime supply of sunscreen. Yeah, okay. We'll have to sacrifice one of the kids for that. But anyway, uh, right, let's crack on with the show. So given your insatiable appetite for entrepreneurship and doing things your own way, we have to start with your background. So what was it like growing up in Canada? Can you tell us about your family, your upbringing, and some key influences before you went off into the business world? Uh, Sure. I was the third of three daughters in a family that was, uh, I'd say, sort of middle class. Uh, My father was a real estate agent, so he sold houses. My mom was a secretary and she worked for the city. And my father um, died when I was 11. He had brain cancer. He was a heavy smoker. And back then, they really didn't have a lot of treatments. You know, now you have so much more opportunity. And back then, you didn't know anybody else who had a brain tumor. Um, So it was pretty harrowing for a couple of years, especially, you know, between the time I was about nine and 11. Um, And it was really hard on the family. My mom was not a, I'd say, natural born leader. She's quite a humble person and a Polish immigrant. Her family was of nine children and they lived on a farm in Saskatchewan. And apparently when they first moved there in the winter, they all lived underneath an overturned boat. (laughs) And it was pretty cold. So she was humble, Um, she was quiet, and, you know, just sort of made do with what the situation was after my dad passed away. But I think it taught me um, very early on that I was going to have to look after myself. And if I wanted to make money, I was going to have to make it myself. And if I had to juggle a few part-time jobs when I went to high school, I would have to do that myself. And so I learned how to work. And I learned that I could make it happen and I could get what I needed to get, which I think was a real gift. So um, there was a great quote from, it wasn't Stephen Colbert, but he quoted somebody who said that life is a gift, but with it comes great suffering. And I guess I would agree with that. Very true. Okay. You also almost made it to university too, but sadly had to bail on that. So why was that? And do you think it was maybe a blessing in disguise or if you will, a blessing in disguise? Ah, nice pun. Oh, nice pun. Right, I right. see you're a man I sat of around, sat around thinking about that one. Pun-filled words. <laughs> absolutely. Got a surprise and delight our guests. Um, was it yes, it was absolutely a blessing in disguise. Um, my sister had 
moved to New York uh, after my dad passed away, and she was working as a model there. And she was lonely and living, you know, by herself. And said, if I could get accept- accepted to Columbia University, uh, she would pay my tuition. And then she had some unfortunate and unexpected um, financial issues the year that I got accepted. And so I got to New York, and unfortunately, could not take up my spot at Columbia. So I got some part-time jobs. I learned, you know, how to hustle, I suppose, in New York City on not very much money. I was a personal trainer um, because when I was in Canada, I used to be a bodybuilder. I know you can see that about me, but you can see the muscle. Um, so um, I, when I moved to, to New York, I ended up getting a part-time job as a personal trainer before personal trainers were a thing, you know, <laughs> at this local gym called Better Bodies, which was full of all the hipsters and, you know, Jean-Claude Van Damme and Gladys Portuguese, his wife, were working out there and all of these kind of hipster fashion people and um, directors and photographers. So I ended up building quite a clientele of people who worked out at that gym. And then I saved my money and I started to go back to school just part-time at NYU, um, paying my own tuition at the time until I just couldn't cope anymore with the workload. Moving on from JCVD, when did you actually start Bliss? Why? And can you take us through a little snapshot of that journey? So having been a personal trainer where you'd have to get up at five o'clock in the morning and kind of work through and then have a big break in the middle of the day when people are at work and then work very late into the evening, it was quite exhausting. And I realized probably three years into it that I couldn't keep that up and manage to go to school and, you know, stay awake and cope for any long period of time. And Having done that for many years in New York, my skin was actually quite a mess. So one summer I decided to go and learn how to give facials to just fix my own face because I had bought a lot of different products and kind of tried every permutation and combination and nothing really worked. And I had also been for a facial at one of those Romanian facial places on the Upper East Side, which had a really great reputation, but I had saved a lot of money up um, to go and treat myself after a final exam Um, that I took when I was taking part-time classes at NYU. And I left feeling really ashamed of my face and kind of, you know, not like it was a real treat to go for a facial. So I decided that I would try to pivot. I guess, you know, back then it wasn't called pivoting. (laughs) Yeah, it was called, uh, I I was wrong. Let me try something else. (laughs) Well, I was exhausted. Let me try giving facials for a living instead of doing personal training and running eight people around Manhattan for, you know, 80 miles every day. So uh, I I learned how to do treatments and I started to do facials on some of my personal training clients. And then I slowly gave up some of the, you know, more and more personal training and ended up getting a little studio where I could do facials and body treatments and waxing and all kinds of beauty treatments on clients who were not only my former personal training clients, but then people who were recommended to me from them. Now, that was just called Let's Face It. It was in a tiny little room on Lafayette and Spring Street in Soho. And I got you know, fully booked after probably a year, year and a half, and realized that I'd have to move into a bigger space and train other people how to do the same thing. And then we got fully booked there after about, again, two and a half, three years. And that was when I opened Bliss. So it wasn't an instant thing. Um, I, I kind of organically grew the business and then trained more people to do what I was doing and organically grew that business. We had a lot of celebrities who came in, a lot of magazines, remember magazines? They would write about, you know, if you ever got into a magazine back then, one little blurb that was one paragraph long and your phone would be ringing off the hook for months. So very different now because media is so splintered and you have to, you know, be in so many different places at the same time. But um, it was, it was, I guess, not easy back then because you still had to do something that was magazine worthy, but it was a lot more focused in terms of where you got your press from. And how old were you uh, at the time of just before setting up Blispa? 26. Yeah, so there's a lot of experience and there's a lot of a lot of school of life for someone that didn't go to business school, but like learning on the job and stuff. And so I guess by the time you start Blispa, how confident do you feel at that point about knowing what you're doing and how surprised uh, were you, I guess, by the end of how little it might seem that you knew? Well, I guess what we were doing, which was making these types of treatments really um, fun and modern and less intimidating for the average customer was so new 
that I never thought that somebody else might be doing that better than I was or that I didn't know what I was doing because nobody else was doing it. So I guess that gives you a little bit of a leg up in that you're not thinking, do I have my craft down? You're actually inventing a craft from scratch. So as long as you know the technicalities of how to do a facial or how, how to do a massage or a manicure, then it comes down to how are you setting this up as a business for your customers and what's different about it. And so I wasn't trying to study something and be good at it. I was inventing it as I went along. So I suppose a lot less pressure that way. Nobody was judging me against anybody else. They were just enjoying, enjoying what we were serving up. At the beginning of it, I guess I felt, you know, pretty confident. We had a lot of, um, a lot of very influential clients. They loved what we did. People would come in, have are you allowed, treatment. Are you allowed to name drop any of them now so many years later? Oh, yeah. One cute little time, there was a girl who had come from Boston because she read about how good we were with treating acne. And she was in the locker room and I was giving her her facial because I was kind of the specialist. And... She came into the room and lied down on the table and she said, oh, Uma Thurman just helped me get my locker open. <laughs> and she was so excited because she'd, you know, just been in the locker room like everybody else. And, and, you know, unsuspectingly, Uma helped her with her locker key and she, you know, that made her day. And then I proceeded to torture the poor girl, but we had to clean that face up, so... I think one of the more interesting things that are perhaps relevant to this listenership, other than my gossip-centered desire to listen to your celebrity stories, is probably how you ended up selling that business. Um, and, and as I understand, you started, you started off by selling a stake and then the entire business. So can you take us through the process? Sure. Well, you know, back then, I'd never really built a business in order to sell it. I never thought of it that way. I just built it because it was so, it was growing so organically. We really didn't have a choice so when I had my little business, uh, which was three treatment rooms before Bliss, we had a waiting list of probably two years. So if someone would call and try and get a facial, they couldn't come in for two years. And people were starting to get really angry about that. So customers were kind of fed up. And so we kind of had to expand to the Bliss spa, which was 10 rooms. But we had an article in Vogue. And again, you get an article in Vogue back then, suddenly... We had 10 rooms, but we were booked for about 18 months. So it actually didn't help that much. And what I found myself in was this um, cycle of building something, just like Kevin Costner in Field of Dreams, right? If you build it, they will come. Well, we built it, and then it filled up. And then we built a bigger one, and then it filled up. But it kept filling up so quickly, and people kept rebooking for, you know, 6, 12, 18 months in advance. It didn't solve the problem. And so because of the way you know, taxes work when you make investments. I would invest all the money I had, but then I have to pay tax on that investment. And I kept ending up broke, despite the fact that we were incredibly successful. It was always going into, uh, you know, to building and, and a bigger and bigger opportunity. And it seemed like to keep customers happy, I didn't have a choice except for to do that. So around 1998, I suppose two years in, and we always had people kind of, you know, coming in and checking us out. And, you know, you knew the competition were coming in for treatments. Um, we had three different businesses come to kind of woo us, I guess. One was Shiseido. Um, one was Estee Lauder, who was also starting Creme de la Mer at that time. And then there was LVMH. And so they were all kind of you know, maneuvering around talking about how they'd really love to have Bliss as part of their portfolio, you know, what they would offer, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I guess at the time, the Shiseido offer was not something I was that interested in because it wasn't what I wanted to do, just from what they wanted to put me in a, you know, in a studio to make products and be creative. And I actually wanted to work with people because I really loved working on people. Estee Lauder wanted to turn us into a creme de la mer spa, which I didn't understand the whole concept of, you know, why would you do that? Because we've got bliss and it's such a popular concept of why turn it into a creme de la mer spa. And then LVMH flew me to Paris on the Concorde, took me down the Champs-Élysées, took me to the Dior store. I got to try, you know, it was a very fabulous, fun. we had lunch and dinner in Paris. And I'm 29 years old. I came from a, you know, poor kind of background where I had been insecure since I was 11 because of the death of my father and having two nickels to scrape together if I was lucky. And suddenly, you know, that seemed really, 
exciting. It was kind of, wow, I could actually maybe not worry about money anymore. And it was probably the first time in you know, 18 years that I thought, well, it could be kind of nice to have a partner because I would have some money in the bank and not have to worry about it every day. And so in 1999, LVMH bought 70% of Bliss and I kept 30. And there was a big paranoia. Will I still be able to be good at what I do? Given that I have honed my craft under a situation of being dead broke for so long, will I still be capable if I have a couple of dollars in the bank? I actually didn't know if I'd still be able to do it. And even back then we had a mail order catalog, you know, before, before the internet, we had a mail order catalog and we would, I would write up copy for it because I couldn't afford to hire someone to do it. I had a client who was an illustrator and another client who was a still life photographer and they did everything for, for the catalog really inexpensively. And then I wrote the copy and I was really worried because the catalog became quite famous back then. I was really worried I wouldn't be able to write funny copy anymore. And I remember the day that the, you know, the bank transfer came in, I sat down <laughs> to write some copy and I could still do it. And I was so relieved because you just don't know, right? Moving on to the, I guess the next chapter in your life, how long between um, the 70-30 LVMH period and then actually exiting the whole business? And what was that experience like? Is that, did you have any control over that whatsoever or was it a majority minority situation? Oh, no, you know, so LVMH bought us in 1999 and they were actually, you know, quite a fantastic partner. Um, we were the first beauty business that they bought in America. So it was, you know, quite a big deal for them because they had previously had, you know, Dior and Guerlain and sort of old school French beauty brands. Um, and then they bought us and then they bought uh, Fresh and then they bought, you probably don't know all of these brands, but Benefit, Fresh, you know, so they, they got this portfolio going. And unfortunately, two years later, there was September 11th, which was a horrendous, horrendous time, you know, and uh, the economy also just was probably second to COVID was probably the worst time in terms of an economy just collapsing. So LVMH at that time was trying to then look at their portfolio because no one was flying anymore and see what they could divest of that wasn't core because for them, Louis Vuitton, you know, at that time was what was making them all of their money. So they, at that point, started to look at could they sell some of their beauty businesses to someone else because they really wanted to focus on what was their, you know, their core competence. And so Starwood Hotels and Resorts, I have to say I'm really flattered. First, I had the largest luxury group in the world come and buy my business. And then the largest hotel group in the world came and bought it from the lar largest luxury group. You know, it feels good that you've created something that has that much kudos, I suppose. Um, so W Hotels or Starwood merged with us, I guess, and took Louis Vuitton's stake. And that was in 2004, because I had a, a five-year transition plan with LVMH, yeah. And then I stayed in 2004, they sold to W, and I stayed for a year just to do a transition with W, because at that point, I'd kind of done everything that I knew how to do in terms of building a business. And I love the part of a business where you're really struggling to figure something out and it's really hard and you're solving real problems and really moving that dial every day and, and able to create new things. But when it sort of gets masked out and it's not about creating new things for customers anymore and you get too far away from it and it's charts and spreadsheets, that's not really my thing. So W put somebody in charge of the business and I sold my stuff to them in 2000, I think it was 2005. And they took it on and, you know, continued to run it until, I don't know, actually, I kind of lost track. Um, but now, here's the, the funny part. They then sold it to Steiner Leisure, which has LMS and a few other brands. And then Steiner Leisure sold it back to El Catterton, which is partially owned by Louis Vuitton. So it's kind of... It's a very circular so, journey. It's gone all the way around. If 
you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. How So that's 2005. How long until you moved on to Soap and Glory? Well, okay. Soap and Glory did launch in the end of 2006, I believe. I'm really terrible at remembering dates. I am too. But, you know, I was hoping you'd be better. But okay, so it wasn't more than a year. And, and, and what was the period between that and uh, exiting to Boots and I guess the bit in between, which is where did you set it up? Why? Well, I was in London. Yeah, why were you in London? We had opened a Bliss in London. So we were going back and forth. I'm Canadian, right? So I'm actually more of a Londoner than an American. My husband is French. He had aging parents and he wanted to be in Europe. And I really loved London um, because when we moved there to open the Bliss, which was in 2001, I believe, um, we just loved it. It's such a beautiful city and it's really, you know, it's very human. And um, we thought, you know what, this is a great compromise. We've done the New York thing. The New York spas were running themselves at that time. And we had great management teams and great people in there. So it didn't really require us to be on site. But the London spa really needed me to be there more. So we decided to do a stint in London. And um, my son Louis was born in London in 2004. And then Raphael in 2006. And I launched Soap and Glory believe in 2006 at Harvey Nichols and it was supposed to be a hobby because Harvey Nichols was you know down the road and I thought oh this would be great I'll just do some products it can kind of be a hobby I want to you know stay in the game because I love working and I love manufacturing you know manufacturing and raw ingredients and formulating and marketing it's just, just very fun for me because it's a community right when you go to work it's just a lot of fun people and it's mentally stimulating but I did think it would be a, a small project and then Boots approached us about rolling out into maybe 300 doors or something like that. So I thought, well, you know, why not? It wasn't really a small hobby anymore, you know. But within two or three years, it started to become a monster. A lot of people probably remember at Christmas, we would always have this giant pink bag. Christmas, we would sell hundreds of thousands of those giant pink Soap and Glory bags in the week before Christmas because they were a really great deal. And it just became kind of like the pink brand that ate the UK. But it was really fun and really interesting and a real learning to be working along with a, a big mass retailer like that, because I'd never done that before. Of course, I'd worked with Sephora and with Neiman Marcus and Nordstrom's and those kinds of retailers, but never, a, you know, never a giant like a Boots. So learned a lot from that. 
And how did you how did you grow that business then? Did you take on investment? Did you do it all yourself? Was it early strategic money from Boots? Um, well, so I owned the part of it that that distributed to Sephora or to the smaller retailers, and then we licensed Boots the rest of the business. So we would create all of the product. We would do the specs. We would do the packaging. We would do the marketing. We do the PR. We do the social, and then Boots basically would buy and merchandise their product. So that I didn't have to own all of that product. Yeah, and which at the scale of Boots as well is like basically your marketing campaign as well, especially when your branding was so vibrant. Yeah, we, we had to keep you know a real hold on that to make sure that it didn't get watered down. I found that if you have a brand that everybody loves, it's really flattering, but people like to then have a say in what it looks like and you have to be very careful because you can't do it democratically. There's a, there's a great saying, one of my favorites, and maybe sensitive but timely, search the parks in all the cities, you don't find statues of committees. Because you can't have a whole bunch of people when you're trying to create a brand, you can't have a whole bunch of people and be trying to respect everybody's opinions because then it's not a brand, then it's a committee. Totally. And it would be really embarrassing right now for people to be tearing down statues of committees anyway. So at least if there's one central figure to blame, you know, you get the glory. Much too, easier, much ways. easier. Yeah. Um, what, were, what were the really tough or stressful moments that maybe you hated living through um, with Soap and Glory specifically? Where, uh, how long was your journey with there? And, and can you shine a light on some of those? Um, let's see. So 2006 was when we launched and it was sold to Boots in 2000 and I think it was 2014. I think stressful. That's a tough one. I'd say having, I'm not very good at explaining myself. If I feel like something is right, there's a gut instinct, but I can't necessarily explain on paper, nor do I find it to be a great use of my time to have to explain maybe to a, a, a group of junior buyers or people who don't have the same gut instinct why this might be a good bet. Um, and I'm not necessarily good at explaining something with charts and paper and data, especially if there's no way to get data because it's something you haven't done before. So when you're, you know, you're going out into the void and into something new, it's really hard to back yourself up. And as we all know, most ideas, you know, you can do a lot of work and you can do a lot of research and, and have an idea. It doesn't mean it's going to make it anyway. So if you have experience, and I guess I'd go with Ray Dalio, who is one of my um, heroes. Me too. John, Me too. you could just what a li- yeah, read that book once a month. Yeah, yeah it's the best book. <laughs> it's the best book. Also, you only really need to read it once and then you can go, the best thing about the book is you can just reference the bits you wanted to remember at that time because it's like an index. It's just brilliant. There's so much in there though, right? You kind of have to read it over and over again or else you just forget because it's kind of like watching Madagascar. There are so many good jokes, but if you don't watch it a few times, you miss a lot of the jokes. And with him, there's so much good advice that you could miss it or you'll forget it. But he talks about the meritocracy, right? He had those playing cards where people sit around the table and they look at well, who's done this before and who's done that before and who's been successful at it. And if someone hasn't been successful or hasn't done something before and their opinion doesn't count, <laughs> and you don't always get that when you are a brand founder interfacing with a large corporation like a Boots. So you get thrown into a room with, you know, 12 buyers and some of them are 20 years old. And last week they worked on diapers and last year they worked on soft drinks. And you're trying, you're having to argue with them about face cream and they don't know. And so I would find that quite frustrating. I suppose that would be a low point because <laughs> I'm, I'm not always the most patient. Yeah, and I'm trying to remember what he actually calls it because it's on the baseball cards. Is it provability or something? But it's basically, you know, you're allowed you're allowed to claim your stake on that decision and uh, we'll go with it. But if you're wrong, then you're losing points. And the next time you try and do it, then ultimately you've got a bad ratio on it and your opinion is just not worth as much as other people. So therefore, how strongly do you want to back this idea? It's just such a genius way of committing to a process over a period of time. And saying this is more than just gut instinct, but sometimes gut instinct might absolutely be the right way, um, in which case you are the right person for that role. I guess in your in, in, in your case, in pre-Dalio, really sharing all of this through principles, it is more of a follow me, I'm the leader. 
Kind of, yes. The meritocracy aspect of of it being, hey, you've not done this before, so can we just like believe me? I'm trying to I'm trying to make a success of this, and so it was it was tricky. Yeah. So do you reflect on that period? It sounds like you're reflecting on that period, like you had sort of uh, uh, original insights into leadership challenges and leadership decisions and almost maybe not self-doubt, but just concerns around culture and how people will see you. Um, No, I didn't have so many concerns around how they would see me. I just realized that I was not a big company type of person because I've done okay being how I am and I'm all right with that. And I know that Probably I shouldn't. And someone asked me this the other day when I was interviewing them. They said, well, how do you think people see you? And I said, well, probably I shouldn't interface with people who are very junior because I probably will scare them just because I'm direct. I'm not mean, but I'm going to say exactly what I think. And of course, it takes some experience to know that that's not personal. So when you have to then be in a situation where it's really not the optimal situation for you and your dynamic, it's not good for anybody. But if that's what they've got and that's what you have to deal with, you know, you do your best, but it's probably not my, it's not my favorite. (laughs) So before we move on to beauty pie, obviously you'd clearly spent a lot of time at a standing desk or something because you created FitFlop. So before we run straight into the beauty pie story, Give us a snapshot of FitFlop. Um, what was the idea? How were you involved this time? Um, how did you set it up? And um, I mean, you know, from a personal experience, I just remember it was so niche. I was on the underground. And I saw these FitFlop ads and they're so jarringly weird that you remember them. As in the concept, the concept of FitFlop, but it's not, it's not the name, but like the idea of like a hill, uh, a hill flip-flop was so completely unique that you only had to really see it once to remember it, which I always thought was super brilliant about it, even though not being the target customer. So love to hear snapshot from you, please. Thank you. And I'm so flattered, actually, that you remember those ads. We had like an amazing photographer, too, and they were really bright colored and great copy. And yeah, that, that's fantastic to hear. OK, I was once at a conference and someone was giving a speech and he said that the limits to what a beauty product is are only in your imagination. And I remember um, walking my son to school. It was just like preschool. I think he was probably two or he must have only been about two because we launched Fit Flop in 2007. And my feet have always been kind of wide, high in steps because I was an athlete and I was a gymnast when I was younger. You know, they don't fit every shoe. And I did love my sort of designer sandals, usually flats, but I would often walk him to school, like his little preschool, before I would walk over to the Soap and Glory offices and my feet would be coming out of the back of the shoes or they were just all horribly uncomfortable. And I remember thinking, yeah, because someone could invent a shoe that could kind of align you, that was sort of a bit of a workout. So when you're walking, your, your joints are being aligned and, you know, kind of like doing yoga while you're walking. <laughs> And I started to just research because, of course, I was doing Soap and Glory at the time, but I also thought it would be really interesting to be able to do a shoe that had all the different benefits and kind of, you know, beauty from the, from the feet up, right? And I thought about, you know, how could you do that? And having been a personal trainer, I knew quite a lot about how the body worked and how the, you know, musculoskeletal system hooked together and what you could do and you couldn't do because if you put weights on the bottom of your feet, that's going to mess with your knees and your hip flexors. And so I knew that I needed to find a biomechanic. Well, actually, I started searching for shoe designers. I had the idea. Let me do a flip-flop first because flip-flops are inexpensive. Everybody can buy one, right? Because I always like to do things that are quite democratic, like as many people as possible to be able to benefit from whatever it is that I'm inventing if it ends up being good. And I had a friend at the time whose uncle had a flip-flop factory in India, random. I had met him through another friend. So I thought, wait, he said that flip-flops are really inexpensive. So let's do a flip-flop that helps to kind of align your you know, body and, and has the right kind of ground reaction for us. So I started to search online for shoe designers. 
and I would make them all sign a non-disclosure agreement and they would come over and we'd have a meeting and I'd describe what I wanted to do and they'd all look at me and go, I don't know how to do that. I just draw shoes. And I realized that there was nobody in the non-athletic shoe business at the time who did anything that had to do with ergonomics. But no one had any idea what I was talking about when I was talking about having a shoe that was good for you. And so it was another one of those kind of niche ideas, which I remember a reporter asking me once, well, why, if this is so good, why didn't like Nike think of it? It's like, I, I don't know why they didn't think about it, but I thought of it. So finally, I was talking to the Dean of the University of Swansea, who randomly had invented intense pulse light hair removal. At the time, I had invested a small amount in an at-home intense pulse light hair removal business. And it was his technology, and he had asked me if I would help work on the products that would be used before and after. And at the end of our meeting, I said, hey, by the way, I'm trying to invent a shoe, you know, that does X, Y, and Z. Do you know anybody? And he said, oh, you need to come up to the university and meet with our biomechanics department. Now, I'd never heard that word before, and I never realized that what I needed was a biomechanist rather than a shoe designer. So then I started to search for biomechanists in different universities, and a lot of them had biomechanics departments. And then I found somebody, I mean, that was another bunch of train trips, right? Because not everybody, even when I tell them the idea, they'd say, well, we know how to test shoes, but we don't know how to do a shoe that does that. So that was a little bit of research. And then I finally found somebody um, at South Bank University in London. And I went in and I said, here's my idea. I want to make a shoe that does X, Y, and this. And he just looked at me and said, I know how you can do that. And then he described the very first technology that we then built. It took three or four months. Um, I literally had a drawing of it, had a meeting with the guy who had inspired the idea about five years before by giving a speech was then in charge of Bath and Body Works in the United States. He happened to be in London with his buying team. We had a meeting at Claridge's. I literally had a drawing of the shoe at that point, a drawing. And I said, yeah, this is a shoe. It's going to do X, Y, and Z. It's like, you know, going to align your body when you walk and blah, 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 blah. And he goes, I think we can sell between... 30 and 300,000 of those a year. <laughs> but I then had to find someone to manufacture this shoe. Now imagine, who are you going to go to? I don't know anything about footwear manufacturing. I'm not going to go to Nike or Adidas or what, you know, really me against a giant. I don't think so if someone takes the idea. And then I thought in the recesses of my mind, I remembered that I knew somebody who was a footwear manufacturer. I'd heard it somewhere in some meeting. And then I realized that the company that made Sexy Mother Pucker, which was the lip plumping gloss for Soap and Glory, when I had gone out to their lab, which was in, I believe, Trowbridge or somewhere like that. I mean, there are all these places that don't even know where they were. How I got there, I can't even remember, but we had a meeting and they gave a whole presentation about how they were at the time, it was called LF Beauty. They made this product. They had a sister company, which actually did footwear manufacturing for Marks and Spencer. And then they had this company and this company. And I went, oh, wait, I can ask them. They do footwear manufacturing. So they hooked me up with one of their designers. We did this joint venture where they were going to source the product. I was going to buy it from them. They were going to then, according to the specs of the professor at the university, and then they gave me a designer and we designed, you know, the uppers and a flip-flop was born. So it was super exciting, actually. How long did it take that whole process from start to uh, selling your first thousand? Probably about two years, maybe, or 18 months. Um, but we tested, we had to test them, of course, to make sure that the claims were right. And we tested them at two different universities to make sure that we had backup. And when we finally got them in, I think I took, you know, you have to take a flyer on some of this stuff. How many do you want to manufacture? So I said, well, I'm going to be really sorry if I don't manufacture enough of them, right? Because then we're going to sell out and it's going to take a long time. It takes a long time. You've got to make the midsoles. They were triple density, which is a very complicated procedure because some, some of the EVA is harder and then softer and then middle. And, and um, so I think we bought 30000 for the U.S. and 30000 for the U.K. And I called, I think I emailed Sweaty Betty at the time, because I, I thought they were great, right? And it was, Sweaty Betty was not new, but 
sort of new. And I said, look, you know, do you want to buy, do you want to buy some of these? You know, we're inventing blah, blah, blah. And they said, yeah, okay, we'll buy them. And we're going to send out, we'll buy 400 pieces, right? And so they sent out an email. And this was, you know, back in 2007, they sent out an email and got 3,000 orders from one email. So I then called, <laughs> I called Bath and Body Works and, and I said, okay, I think we need to up our orders because we were pretty much, I had Kings Road Sporting Club, which was like the hot place at the time. Now it's a Lululemon and, um, and Sweaty Betty. And then I remember us being on the cover. So online, the Sunday Times, actually just the Times online, there were three top stories. One was a flip-flop that tones your bomb or something like that. Underneath it was Putin on when the West should, or why the West should be more worried. And then the third one was like, Tony Blair gives his advice for blah, blah, blah. And literally for six or seven weeks, flip-flop was a top story on the Times Online, which was just genius. I do feel sometimes like Forrest Gump. Have you seen the movie? I have seen the movie. I was just thinking, you know, as great as that is, and I'm excited for you. I mean, people should have taken Putin more seriously than Fitflop, and you know, maybe we'd be in different times. We might have been. This is the this is the Forrest Forrest Gump thing where you're influencing everyone's history. You know, not always for the positive. Shame on I you. I know. I know. I should have not hugged the limelight like that. But I guess that's what women cared about at the moment. <laughs> Very fair. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, not Putin half naked on a horse. Um, okay, so what, what happened with Fitflop then? Is it still still running? You have an exit still the business. Running. Yeah, so how do you find the process of finding a CEO? What was the extraction plan for you, so to speak? And why did you do it and when? And then obviously transitioning gracefully into Beauty Pie, please. Uh, oh man, that's quite a lot. It's going to be a very long podcast. No, it's fine. Just you got uh, two sentences, surely. Well, okay, in two sentences. You know, I'm great at, again, I'm really great at the ideas. I know what I want the brand to look like. I know how I'd like to speak to the customers and what kind of quality I want to offer when it comes down to, you know, supply chain management. <laughs> I'm not the best person. I don't want to stare at the numbers and, and do all of the management, you know, day-to-day management of the people. So if I'm in a situation where I'm creating, that's where I really thrive. And so I know um, at one point I have to get somebody who can, and also, you know, the size of it. You have to get someone who can really run a business that's that size because just a small error is very, very costly. So um, I've had a few different CEOs along the way at um, Fitflop. And one was, um, I'm trying to remember, the first one was actually the guy who was heading up the footwear company that was sourcing for M&S. So unfortunately, he ended up coming on board with me, which didn't. Luckily, it didn't hurt my um, relationship with the supplier who was making Sexy Mother Pucker. And they had somebody else that they could put in his role. And he was in that role for, I think, about three or four years. And then um, we had a fantastic woman for about two or three years who now heads up Toast. Um, And after that, our chief operating officer came in and has been the CEO for the last while. However many other years are left. What's beauty pie, Marcia? There's so many ways to describe it, but it's a buyer's club for luxury beauty product addicts. So I say you can buy luxury beauty products without the luxury beauty bullshit. And the reason that I started it was because I was actually, I mean, a few points, a few different points of data that gave me the idea. One was when I went to China to work on one of the collections with Fitflop. And in China, very often in Dongguan and the manufacturing areas, if you go in the winter, they don't heat the factories and even the hotels that you stay in are pretty cold. And I had forgotten to bring a moisturizer with me, but I had everything else. For some reason, I just didn't pack a moisturizer. And I remember going through duty-free in the airport in Hong Kong, and I went to go buy a moisturizer from a brand that, you know, does good quality product. Not super high in terms of active ingredients, but always beautiful textures, and you know know you're going to get a good product. And I went into the duty-free, went to a shelf, picked it up, and it was $225 or, you know, something crazy like that. And I thought, 
Oh my God, come on. I know how much, you know, it's got a nice jar. I'll give them that, but they're manufacturing these by the millions. I know this doesn't cost more than five or six bucks to make. And I couldn't bring myself to buy it. And then I thought, man, if I don't want to get, you know, raked over the coals for my moisturizer and I could afford it if I wanted to pay that much for it, then why should any woman have to pay this ridiculous markup for her beauty products? That was one. And then the second one was when I was kindly invited. So normally when you are a cosmetic brand, you have labs that invite you to their open days to show you all of their new you know, their new inventions. So it might be a new texture, a new lipstick, or a new uh, moisturizer with a new combination of active ingredients. They pretty much do all of that background work and then present you things that are pretty much finished. And then you can go in and improve or change or add different active ingredients if you want to. Um, But with color cosmetics, you normally don't because they're usually quite beautiful the way they are. And you'll have expensive, medium, and, you know, mass. But the expensive quality stuff really isn't that expensive. And having sold Soap and Glory and not being in the, um, the beauty industry, it was really kind of one of these Italian labs. It was really an elite Italian lab to invite me to their open day. So I went and I thought, you know, I never really had time between businesses. I never took the time to sit back and just listen and, and find out what's important for you know, this manufacturer, where are they trying to go? You know, usually you're talking about where you want to take your brand. And and they explained to me that they had spent the year before um, going through the process of trying to do an IPO. And they could not get a bank to float them for an IPO because none of the banks believed that they could grow 10%. And they were, these guys are one of the biggest, absolutely most elite suppliers for almost every cosmetic brand that you would see if you walked into Selfridges. And they couldn't go public at a valuation that was half of what some bloggers beauty bag was valued at at that time. Now, if this lab shut down, the whole industry would collapse. That's how important and integral they were. And I thought, something is really off here when like the hub of the beauty industry can't go public. And you've got a vlogger from California whose business is somehow valued at twice theirs. You know, the value has to change here. And as I left with all these samples, because every time you go, they give you these bags of samples. Um, I had all these samples in my bag and I walked through the Milan train station into a Sephora and saw Most of the products that were in my bag were actually, you know, things that you could see versions of on the shelves packaged for 30 times as much what they would cost if you bought them, you know, direct from that lab in mass. And I remember thinking to myself then, God, I love this job. I love being able to go to the labs and look at this product. I mean, it's like Christmas every time you go and thinking, wouldn't it be amazing if I could bring everybody to this part of my job, like bring all my customers with me, bring all my friends, bring all the women, and they get to shop direct instead of for 30 times as much because it's sitting on a shelf in a retail store. And so it was really the combination of those things that made me think, okay, how can I do this? Because I I don't wanna have to do it through a retailer. It's so old school and I had, I tried that, right? With the, uh, you know, being interfacing with boots with Soap and Glory and it just was not the fun part for me. The fun part for me is finding the great stuff, coming up with a great concept or building the great stuff, right? In terms of putting active ingredients together making a really amazing product. And then being able to just explain it and communicate it to customers and charge a fair price for it and never have to never have to pretend because I can't pretend something is worth more than it is. I was always really, it would make me very uncomfortable. So with Beauty Pie, you actually see the transparency of what it costs to make this product and bring it into the warehouse. And then you see what it would normally cost you if you were gonna buy it at a retailer. And it's a club and we have no reason to try and sell you something that we wouldn't buy ourselves. And 
it's all very pure because we're just always thinking about what is the best thing for the customer and what happens to be the best thing for the customer is also the best thing for us. So as a, as a whopper of a, a concept, this is it because it ticks all of those boxes of being able to do something that's super pure where you're 100% customer focused, where the community is telling you what to do um, and you don't have that noise in between. It's us interfacing with our members and they, you know, for them, it's like being a kid in a candy store. Everything's super affordable. And so it's really great for right now as well, because I think money is tight for a lot of people. And if it's not, you're so worried about how you spend it. Uh, so to be able to have that luxury treat, you know, that pink box with this fabulous stuff showing up and knowing that it's really super high quality, but you didn't pay any excess is just wonderful to be able to deliver that to people. Do you find that quite a complicated marketing message to get across at first? They can't believe that good product can be so inexpensive. Absolutely. I mean, it takes someone trying it. They try it once. That's it, right? Because all you have to do is get the product onto them. But we have to explain that 90% or more of a retail product's cost is markup. You know, that retail markup is 50 to 60%. Particularly in beauty, right? Oh my God. I mean, it's random almost how much you can choose whatever you want. There's no legally mandated fence around what you can charge for something. It's all what you can, what you can get. And the beauty industry especially has been really excellent at convincing women that if it's not expensive, right, then you're not good enough. And I mean, I was thinking about it, but I probably can't say exactly what I'm thinking. But there's one particular tagline from one particular French company that tells women that they should spend a lot on themselves. Yes, we would hate to say L'Oreal because you're worth it, because that would be awful coming out of your mouth. But my mouth, on the other hand, absolutely fine. Anyway. But, but not that's not even saying you deserve to take care of yourself. It's saying... You're worth spending that money. I mean, it's like, wow, it's super clever, but wow. For, I mean, we, are, we should take care of ourselves, but we should get the best deal possible. And so, yeah, there's a lot of unwinding that has to go on there. But I just think it's a great challenge and it is something worth doing because people should not, you know, they should not only feel good if they have lots of money to spend on something. So I guess the the key question for me um, is, like, obviously, you've had this experience, we've understood already that you're a creative person, you don't necessarily enjoy the bits where it starts to get into financial management, leadership, yada, yada, understandably. What do you see your role in this being? Are you like really clear from the offset, like knowing what you're like, that this is like a, a situation of setting it up, hiring the right management team, stepping back and watching that baby grow? Or do you think you'll be in this for a longer term? Well, no, I mean, I think now what I know is that, you know, there usually comes a time in, in my businesses where people say, oh, you've got to stop doing the customer interface and you've got to stop doing the copywriting and you've got to stop doing the naming of the products. And actually, that's what I do. <laughs> That's what I do better than other people. So I shouldn't stop doing it unless it becomes overwhelming and then I should get help, but I shouldn't stop doing the part that I love doing. That was, I suppose, the mistake that I've made in the past. Um, so I will, and I'm also not a finance person, right? So you don't want to try and learn a new skill when you're really, really good at something else. And, you know, one can reinvent themselves, but I'm never going to be you know, an A-plus level finance person, nor am I ever going to be an A-plus level operations director or an A-plus level, like, chief of engineering. So why try and do that? I'd rather surround myself with people who are really good and love what they do as well and, and make that team. And if they eclipse me, great. I had a conversation with somebody this morning just about, about how you have to be comfortable with being irrelevant as your businesses grow and it's such a hard thing for people to in any stage of their life or their business to become irrelevant because we all want to be important within whatever dynamic that's going on whether it's a friend thing or a family thing or you know or a business thing and if suddenly you hire someone and they're better than you and no one's going to you anymore 
you have to be comfortable. You have to be congratulating yourself that you've hired yourself out of a position because you can focus on what you're really relevant at. And I think that's really hard for people as businesses grow. I'm just warning you now because, you know, when yours like totally blows up and takes off, which I know it has already, but I mean, even next level, then you're not going to be as important at everything that you're important at right now. It's going to be a tiny slice. And that can make people very insecure. But if you go into it knowing the reason I'm feeling like this might be because I'm becoming irrelevant at this. And actually, the fulfillment, as Angela Duckworth says, she's great too, right? The woman who wrote Grit. I mean, my final three questions really are, uh, what's been the hardest moment in your entrepreneurial journey and how did you overcome it? So I guess we'll start there. I have a terrible memory for hard moments. That's probably why I keep going. Because in fact, I forget about them. That's just too much time in America. Look at that positivity. Yeah, maybe. Well, what did you learn from it, right? I mean, a a hard moment is really something that came along that you weren't prepared for. And it was a real opportunity to have a learning experience. Usually, I think, epigenetics wise, the more painful the experience is, the more it actually becomes part of you. And then you learn it and you don't repeat it. And until you have really experienced the pain of some kind of failure or mistake or whatever, you won't learn from it. So hard. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? And what's the best piece of advice you could give to listeners listening in? And it's not allowed to be from Maya Giuliani, Angela Duckworth, or Ray Dalio, I'm afraid. Okay, best piece of advice I've ever received. Okay, that's a really difficult one. There are so many. And it's actually something I've read, which is the best decisions that you can make are always the ones that increase customer trust. So if you're stuck in business and you're trying to figure out, should I do X, Y, or Z? The one that increases your customer's trust for your offer is always the correct decision. And you'll never regret it, even if you have to really squeak through for a period of time. You will not have to go back and clean up a mess as long as you have done what's the right move for your customer. Um, So that would be one. The best piece of advice I've ever given? No, well, I mean, yeah, possibly, possibly the best piece of advice you've ever given is the one that's coming right now, which is what is the best piece of advice you've got for listeners and other entrepreneurs um, inspired by your journey? Okay, it's about reading. I think you would probably agree with this because every time I say something, you're like, yeah, I've read that one, I've read that one, I've read that one. Warren Buffett reads six hours a day. Bill Gates, if you've seen the Netflix documentary, carries a book bag of all kinds of stuff around, right? He's reading, whenever he has five minutes, he's scanning through a book. He reads wide, he reads deep. You don't just read what you're interested in because an algorithm, of course, is gonna send you more of the same. You read things that you never really are interested in at all, just to make sure that your brain stays really broad and that you can connect different points of light. Um, when When you're trying to solve a problem, the more information from random sources that you've got in your head that you can connect up to make a picture, and that picture may solve the problem that you've got, the more opportunity that you have throughout your entire career, your life, in any situation. So, you know, read as much as you possibly can, write things down, put up those points of light for yourself so that you can connect the dots and create your unique picture because that's your unique opportunity. Amazing. It's been such a pleasure and everything that I hoped for. So you didn't disappoint, which means that every listener is in for uh, a lifetime of inspiration following this. So thank you so much for your time, Marcia. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app.
That's it for this season on Secret Leaders, but we'll be back with Series 6 at the end of September, plus launching a shiny new YouTube channel to feature in some shiny new video interviews too. So we're going to let you know when that's up and running. As for our Sunday show, Represented, that's going to continue to run every Sunday throughout August, so although it's a slightly different flavour, it would be lovely if you give these founders a chance, follow their fundraising journeys, and support them on social too, as we do more to get black founders represented here in the UK. Now, finally, some personal milestones. A big congrats to my partner in crime here, Rich Martel, who had a lovely baby daughter, Florence, born midway through this series, so a little coronavirus miracle. And on a personal note, my brain health and mental wellness startup Heights has raised a million pound of seed funding to keep us growing on our mission to nourish people's brains so they can reach their heights. A reminder of our intro code of 25% off your first month with the code LEADERS at yourheights.com. Big thanks to Harry Morton and Daniel Henley at Lower Street Media for their brilliant editing, Christina Katz for all our gorgeous artwork this series again, and Charlotte Newing for the PR support throughout the series. If you want to continue to hear me interviewing people, I do that twice a month for Heights with various amazing people like Stephen Fry and Dr. Chatterjee. And you can follow me on all social media at Dan Murray Serta if you just can't wait till the end of September to hear my voice again for our new series. Until then, I hope you all look after your own mental well-being, your families, your friends, your businesses and yourselves until we join you again. Please do rate the show on your favourite podcast player if you've been enjoying it. It does make a difference to us. See you in a few months and remember... Tune in or you'll miss out.